The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Yesterday, actually, I gave a, we had a meditation day, a very nice day, actually. Encourage people who've got the time to spend one day a month meditating, you know, and meditating, listening to um, Dhamma, discussing uh, Dhamma. And it's a very, very useful thing for us. It's a bit of an oasis. But as I reflected then, there were very much more likely that there were more people at the other temple, not so far away, Chadston Shopping Centre, <laughs> than this temple. <laughs> Plus they have the car parking. <laughs> So this morning I'd like to give a talk about something that affects all of us, I think. And it's about thinking. I spoke about it yesterday. This is the, the link. And to, I thought, well, how? what would be a good approach to thinking? I've talked about it in the past. And I thought uh, maybe the title of this talk could be The Buddha's Thought Management Plan or Thinking Management Plan. So how do we relate to our thinking in meditation but mainly in this talk about daily life. Yesterday was about meditation, so, but I'll bring up uh, meditation as well. So this is about um, the Buddha's thinking plan or thought plan. Sounds like thought, man thought management, sounds like thought control, doesn't it? <laughs> but uh, thinking management, perhaps. So uh, last week I spoke about uh, aversion, if people remember that, aversion or hate. I was talking about the some of the unwholesome roots in our minds. The good news is we also have these wholesome roots of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. Um, and the negative, of course, is greed, hatred, and delusion. And one of the things that feeds uh, both roots, the aversion, the hatred that we sometimes experience, is, of course, thinking, thinking, speaking. A speech comes from the thinking, as does action. And this can feed the negative aspects of our mind, greed, hatred, and delusion. But, fortunately, it can also feed the positive aspects of our mind. So thinking can support developing non-greed, the sense of generosity and giving, can support the uh, non-aversion uh, or non-anger, things like loving-kindness, metta we call it, or maitri, kanti, many positive emotions, and also non-delusion, wisdom, understanding ourselves and the world as they truly are. And I, I thought of this management plan because these days there's a management plan for everything. I think <laughs> there's fire management plans. That's what I was very aware of recently because I stayed at Newbury about two weeks ago and one day we had a severe fire warning. And on that day you have to be prepared to evacuate at a moment's notice or any time. So you have to be prepared. You have a, a, um, a shopping bag, one of these cloth shopping bags with your goggles in it and your, your mask for the smoke. This, is, this will be good for people overseas. They, <laughs> they know about fire in Australia. And also gloves to protect you against uh, uh, embers and things like that. And in this shopping bag, you have to put the things you want to take if you have to uh, evacuate at short notice, a few moments. So you prepare that in the morning. And I call this bag our tanha bag, our wanting bag, because <laughs> what we put in it is going to be very important to us. Because we think, wow. So it would be interesting to have gone around <laughs> and seen what people put in their bags, actually. And uh, for myself, too, actually. And I heard, actually, quite humorously, that one, uh, maybe I told it last week, they had an evacuation in Trentham, a, a town or a village, really, near this monastery, Newbury Monastery in the country outside Melbourne. And uh, I think it was a real evacuation a few years ago. And an, an old lady turned up and she had a chair with her. And they said to her, why did you bring the chair? And she said, I didn't know what to bring. <laughs> so for her, it wasn't really, it wasn't the sense of, well, you know, the house could burn down, everything could be gone. <laughs> But maybe it was quite practical too, because she was probably thought, well, I can sit around for a long time, so <laughs> I might as well be comfortable, <laughs> something like that. So today we'll be looking at the, uh, discussing the, um, uh, the Buddha's uh, thinking or thought management plan. 
because thinking particularly in the West is, is often celebrated. And uh, we have many great philosophers and they're usually called the great thinkers, aren't they? The great thinkers. And I always think of um, the, I think most people, they may not know a lot of these philosophers, I don't, <laughs> but we know if there's one, one uh, person, I think, or one quotation everybody knows. Any ideas what that is? Yes, exactly. Anybody know who that was? Descartes, that's right, René Descartes. I think, therefore I am. Good that you asked. Yeah, think, I think, therefore I am. It's very interesting because it sort of suggests, well, if you don't think, does that mean I'm not? But I, th- <laughs> I think it's a bit deeper than that, actually. But it does show the link between thinking and thought. My, I'm thinking, it's my thought and how we own thought. And we look at that later in the talk. Hopefully we get time. Because often we assume that this thinking is mine. I'm doing it. It's uh, rather than, in Buddhism we say, it is happening due to conditioning process. But also a lot of this, uh, I always think too, these you know, these great thinkers, I don't know a lot about them really, but I've heard of a little about some of their lives. And they don't sound like they... Even though they had these great thoughts, it didn't lead to great happiness, which I think is really the proof of the pudding. You know, and this is where the Buddha's teaching is so practical. It's it is some for some people. Yes, it's a philosophy, but in actual fact, I say because people say, "Is it a religion? Is it a philosophy? Is it a way of life?" And I say it's a way of life because the Buddha is really encouraging us to practice it, but at the same time. It's really a religion, because you see it in Sri Lanka, you see it in Burma, Thailand, all these places, and even here. (laughs) And also, it is a philosophy. Some people are just, it's enough for them to read the Buddha's teaching, and it's so intellectually satisfying that there is is uh, some happiness that one gains from seeing how it all hangs together, fits together. But what a shame to only read the menu, as it were, and not eat some of the food. (laughs) that the Buddha has on offer. That's the shame of it, you know. And that's what I always feel with somebody who really understands the teachings, you know, has got an intellectual grasp of the teachings but doesn't necessarily practice them. They're not getting the benefit of of those teachings. And, of course, one of the things that we see with thinking in terms of, you know, uh, um, Buddhism particularly is it doesn't go deep enough. People can think and say one thing and be feeling something quite different, actually. And so thinking is only skimming the surface of our minds, really, only skimming the surface of our minds. And this is where the Buddha's teaching, you know, is really tapping into, teaching us how to develop insight, to develop this intuitive knowing. He called it direct knowledge because the Buddha's path is one of direct knowledge. It's not thinking about it, not thinking about enlightenment. It's actually experiencing these things for ourselves and understanding from that direct experience. So I'd like to say there is quite a big difference between thinking and insight. And the uh, insight, as I say, is this deep direct knowing from our experience. We've seen something very clearly, whether it be you know, that things are impermanent, we say in Buddhism, you know, temporary, they're changing all the time, whether we see that they're unsatisfactory, this is dukkha, uh, or whether we see that there isn't really a permanent me here, inside me. So, one, I'd like to try this exercise because it uh, involves the audience, so this exercise is a very good, I think, good way to, to, to think about thinking. <laughs> it's interesting. So I'd like you to close your eyes for a moment and say to yourself, I won't think now. I won't think now. And now if you'd like to open your eyes and give some feedback. Did, did anybody successfully... Did anybody uh, not think? 
When you say, you know, when I say, I won't think now, were you able to do that? Not really, I think. Even if it's only the thought, oh, well, I shouldn't be thinking now. I should, oh, no. <laughs> no, that sort of thing. So we, we actually see, this is actually an important, uh, you know, insight we can get that um, does this thinking really belong to us? Can we really control it? This is uh, one of the insights of the Buddha's teaching that, you know, it is, it is something that arises from conditioning. The things we've been thinking about, the things that we've been watching and uh, hearing, uh, all these things come up in our thinking. And uh, so this is where we can see that we don't own the thinking, but we can influence the thinking, fortunately. That's the good news. So sometimes people, especially if they come for a medita- meditation day, they, you know, or come for meditation, people often say, oh, this thinking, it's such a, you know, I just, I sit down. Actually, this is a usual thing that happens with uh, uh, meditators when they first meditate. Oh, I couldn't meditate at all. Save my life. I was just thinking the whole time. And I say to people, that's an insight. You're seeing what's going on all the time. But because in daily life we don't notice, we're not being still, we're not sitting in meditation, we don't notice this. But this is actually an aspect of the mind that is quite natural and and it becomes very obvious too that it is not within our control. Um, especially when you sit down to meditate and you say, like, I won't think, I don't want to think. <laughs> and immediately we say that, I don't want to think or I won't think, we're creating a negative in the mind, a tension in the mind, which makes meditation difficult. Whereas, um, so this is a, something that people, beginners in meditation learn. The first meditation is that thinking happens, is happening most of the time, actually, and that we don't control it. And they'll, hopefully they will learn. Sometimes people, because of that experience, they think, well, oh, I can't meditate because <laughs> I only think. But actually they're, they're uh, beginning to see what's going on. And when we actually know what's going on in life, when we're clear about it, then we can do something about it. And of course we can influence thinking. We can reduce thinking in meditation and of course that's by not fighting it by not saying I won't think I don't want to think it's by allowing it letting it be and letting it slow down so if we have been thinking all day all night usually not all night but (laughs) dreaming sometimes then the momentum of thought is there when we come to sit meditation or walk meditation so this is what we will experience. So for meditators, thinking is <laughs> enemy number one, public enemy number one usually, they think, which is not a good attitude. But thinking is useful too. It has its uses. If we, didn't, if we weren't able to think, we wouldn't be able to have thought management plans, fire management plans, all this sort of thing. And they are useful because especially for this fire management plan I mentioned, we were prepared. We have a, have a sort of a way of uh, getting ready just in case we have to evacuate, if we have to take action when a fire happens at the monastery in Newbury. So this is very useful. And we had the cars ready to go. And, and of course, you know, that, that day too, I mean, the fires in New South Wales are making everybody aware in Australia, probably throughout the world, that uh, it's it's a big threat, and we can uh, we have to be have some degree of planning or preparedness. So it's very useful for um, planning, problem solving to a certain extent. <laughs> and come back to that, remembering sometimes with thinking, you notice with problem solving, I have had it. I'm sure many people have. It can go round and round and round, and you can't get a solution from thinking about it actually. You know, you think, well, yes, on this side, yes, that's true, that's good. Oh, on the other hand, and in the end, there isn't uh, a solution you can arrive at using thinking. That's where intuition is actually very useful. If you can just get peaceful, get still for a short time, and then um, have that in mind, whatever it was that you were, uh, was the problem we were trying to solve, and then just let intuition, let this, uh, this, uh, 
insight, as it were, come from deeper levels of the mind. I find myself that when this happens, some of the solutions I never would have thought of, you know, they just come from left field, we say, or out of the box. So this is where intuition is such a um, useful thing, actually. And it always has that sense of rightness. Uh, sometimes people might say, well, can it be wrong? And I'm sure it can be sometimes. <laughs> it's a great relief when, you, when you're caught in problem solving. You cannot resolve it. But thinking is also a preoccupation that we use. I was likening, likening it to when we go to a doctor's surgery or a dentist's surgery, anywhere these days where there's a waiting room, we're waiting, um, and there are all these magazines, and we flick through the magazines. Thinking is a bit like that. We use it, we're flicking through our memories, thinking about what we're going to do in the future, hardly ever being present wherever we are. So this is how often we, we uh, use thinking. And most of the thinking that is really important for us is about who. Who do you think the, most of the thinking is about? Ourself. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and that doesn't sound too bad in some ways, but if it was all positive, that's great. But it, it's, it's generally a mix. Some people it can be very negative, and I talk about that in a minute, actually. Uh, some, of the, some people, it can be, uh, can be positive. So hopefully, the Buddha's teaching is actually teaching us how to use thinking in a positive way, constructive way, to see through the destructive uh, thinking process. Because most of our life is like, we, we can see it. And uh, when we're not practicing mindfulness, for instance, and you can see it, we go for a walk, and we're going, oh, the tree's looking good, isn't it? Oh, look at those flowers, and oh, they're a nice color. And we're, we're commenting in our mind. We're doing this commentary of what our experience is about, whether we like it, dislike it, or whatever. So this is u- our usual approach uh, to life. There's a lot of commentary going on, talking to ourselves. And as I say, if the talking to ourselves is positive, no problem, <laughs> enjoyable. But it is often it isn't, and it can get out of control And I think everybody probably here uh, will have experienced times when thoughts become obsessive and they just keep cycling. We call caught in a loop. That's often a way of putting it. Caught in a loop and it's just going over and over again. And it's very hard for us to to move the focus, to change the uh, thought that we're experiencing. Like a song that gets stuck in our minds. You know, sometimes these songs... They get stuck in your mind and they just play and play. So these thinking can create all sorts of um, stories in our minds. And this, uh, as I say, can be a positive or a negative thing. But often it's associated with negative states of mind. And it's very easy to see then. And this is where we need to really address those uh, that, those instances. It can create anxiety. The essence of anxiety is fear, isn't it, about the future, how things could turn out. Uh, will we manage? Will we cope? And give rise to panic, you know, these panic attacks. People say um, and they wake up in the morning, two or three in the morning, and just have this terrible panic attack, you know, the terrible fear, anxiety taking them over. And of course, when this happens, one of the, for a Buddhist anyway, and for a, a practitioner, you can say, my goodness, this pattern is really running strong. You know, <laughs> that'd be nice if you could see it like that, actually. That this conditioning is really running strong. This recording almost is playing and causing me to panic about the future. And of course, thinking also goes into the past, and that can sometimes be nice because we can remember, you know, like we remember people that um, have been important in our lives, we feel thankful for. And like this morning, uh, with Savitri was remembering her mother who passed away 14 years ago and being thankful for, for all the positives that she gave in her life. So thinking can be like that. It can be positive. But of course, you know, often it goes towards depression. <laughs> we start to get negative thinking. And particularly if it's about ourselves, you know, how we're not good enough, how we're not worthy, how we're this, that and the other, then it can turn into this depression 
that really becomes overwhelming. And of course, you know, with this thinking, I'll go on to talk about it more later, of course both sides, you know, they're not reality. Thinking is not reality. Uh, and it's always good to keep that keep that in mind. It's an approximation of reality. Sometimes can be quite accurate, but usually very wide of the mark. <laughs> it's not it's not actually a very accurate picture of what's going on. And thinking, as I mentioned before, it can it can uh, empower our positive uh, um, qualities of uh, generosity, um, giving, of loving kindness and also wisdom, but it also can in, uh, encourage, empower, desire, ill will, this negativity in the mind, delusion, harming. And particularly, it gets caught up with this sense of I am. <laughs> A lot of thinking is about that. And this is why, when the, for, for uh, Buddhists, the Buddha said one of the greatest happinesses in life, in the spiritual life, is when one sees through the illusion of a permanent me inside of, the, of ourselves. And this is one of the greatest happiness. It happens in the third stage of enlightenment. It's very deep level. It's uprooted. So no longer is one thinking about oneself as this uh, self, this permanent self separated from all other beings and all other things. And... So now we have a, another practical exercise which may, or I hope, uh, give some idea to that, uh, the, particularly the idea of thinking and its relationship to self. So I'd like you to close your eyes and just imagine or remember um, an occasion when you'd had an unanswered email and you wanted an answer, you're expecting an answer, or an unanswered uh, SMS as a text message, or an unanswered telephone call. You left a message. And just think, how, how did you feel when that email wasn't answered, the SMS wasn't answered, text message wasn't answered, or the call wasn't answered? So now if you'd like to open your eyes. and uh, I have had this experience myself, <laughs> you know, and, and it's very interesting because you know, then you look at it and you think, I don't know whether your reaction when you haven't have had, when you've experienced an unanswered email, SMS or text message or call, whether you thought, is that person angry with me? I have thought that. I thought, oh, I wonder what's wrong. Um, actually, sometimes the positive side of think of it usually is I think, I wonder if they're well. <laughs> you know, if they're not well. So, uh, um, and the the other thing we can think in this on this occasion is, are they upset with me? Have I done something to upset them, or did something I write, I wrote, sorry, uh, upset them? They didn't like it, which is why they haven't replied. And I think this is a very, very good way to see how thinking creates the story and uh, this whole scenario out of nothing, really. They, they may not have received the email. The text phone, the phone may be dead, so they never got the text message, the SMS message. They may have gone away on holiday. There are many explanations for, for uh, them not replying. But one of the, and this brings up, of course, the, uh, Oh, I must move on a minute. Uh, the same same theme actually is one of the greatest worries for us is what people think about us. And there's this nice quote from the internet. I don't know who said it. The greatest prison that people live in is the fear of what other people think. I think it's true. I think it's very true. We actually don't know what they think. <laughs> but there's this nice... Uh, and you've all heard this, I think, that in our teens, and I know in my teens it was very much the case, uh, I was very self-conscious, you know, you think people are looking at you and, you know, and uh, maybe thinking, what's he doing? You know, you, want, you have ideas of what they're thinking about. And we can be painfully self-conscious as teenagers particularly. And then 
in our 20s. We are, usually in our teens, it's interesting, we're interested in fitting in. <laughs> That's the big mode when we we're teenagers, actually, at school and so on. But when we get to our 20s, we're interested in standing out, <laughs> so you know, be noticed. This is the, the worst thing to be ignored, actually. And um, so, in our twenties, we're we're thinking, we are thinking a lot about what other people think of us, how we're coming across, um, and wishing to stand out. In our thirties, we become a bit more defiant. We don't care what people think about us. We don't care anymore. And in our forties, or maybe even later, depending on how quick we are <laughs> learning we realized people weren't thinking about us at all. <laughs> Who were they thinking about? Themselves, exactly. So that was a lovely, uh, a lovely example of it. Oh, actually, I've got a Nasrudin story that's good like that too, but anyway, I think we may leave that. And we see thinking, you know, in um, the, the part it plays in stress. I'm sure everybody's aware of it, you know, that when we feel stressed, it's usually to do uh, with time. You know, we don't have enough time in the day, as they say. And a lot of that is coming from thinking. I've seen it myself. You know, the, you start and get a mantra going, oh, I've got so much to do, I've got so much to do. And you keep thinking, you know, thinking this and it, it winds you up. It makes you feel more stressful than before. And sometimes what I do then is I think, well, what have I got to do? There's so much to do. I, I write it down. Well, it's not that much, really. <laughs> and then I can relax. So this stress is really coming from thinking as well. It's coming from that that uh, uh, thinking which is fueling the fact that we don't have enough time. It can be about our abilities, uh, any of these things. And so now I would like to show some of the... This is uh, the last one for the... Yeah, that would be okay. For uh, uh, showing the... Results, the negative results of thinking. So, I'd like to show a video, which is, I think, an amazing video, uh, on a, a by a man who survived jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge. I don't know. I, I got on the next bus. I sat in the very last seat in the middle row. We began to drive out to the Golden Gate Bridge, and that's when it hit me realized I didn't want to die at all. I realized that I thought, I said, well, what are you doing, Kevin? Get off the bus. I just wanted the pain to stop. That's the common denominator of people we lose to suicide. They just want the pain to stop. I, I was walking up to the bus driver hoping that he would see my pain. But I could not say it overtly. I could not tell him to look at me and say, hey, kid, are you okay? Hey kid, is something wrong? Can I help you? The bus got to the bridge. I sat there crying. Bus driver turned. He stood. He looked at me and he said, Kid, come on. Get off the bus. I got to go. There was a guy to my left. Said to the fellow next to him while pointing at me with his thumb, What the hell's wrong with that kid with a smile on his face? I thought, that's it. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Everybody cared. I just couldn't see it. I walked back toward the traffic. I ran as fast as I could. And I threw myself over the rail. The millisecond that my hands left that rail, instant regret for my actions. And the absolute recognition that I just made the greatest mistake of my life. I hit the water vacuum opened up and sucked me beneath the water about 70 to 80 feet. My legs were completely immobile. I had shattered my lower vertebrae into shards like glass. But then I opened my eyes. The deep, dark depression that brought me to that day had disappeared. The only thing I wanted to do, needed to do, had to do, was survive. I realized I was going down. I shot for what I thought was the surface fast as my arms would take me and I saw the lit water above me. I could see my destination and I thought, well, you're not going to make it. God, save me. I don't want to drown. I made a mistake. I broke the surface. Barely made it. 
We're back now with Kevin Hines, who at the age of 19 attempted to take his own life. Kevin, so can you, what happened with the sea lion? When I resurfaced, I swam 70 feet with one breath and, and without the use of my legs. It was the fastest I ever swam because I knew I wanted to live. I break the surface, I'm up and down in the water. I can't stay afloat. I keep going down. My boots are waterlogged. I cannot stay afloat. I'm going to drown. And that's when something began circling beneath me faster and faster and faster and faster. And of course, I think it's a shark. So I'm freaking, I'm freaking out. I try to punch this thing, it won't go away. In the water, as I flailed to stay afloat and couldn't stay above water, a sea lion came to my aid. There was no shark, but there was a sea lion. And the people above looking down believed to be keeping your body afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind you. Oh my God. I got to live here because a creature saw me in danger and acted immediately. And to me, that's like my guardian angel who saved me that day, uh, along with the Coast Guard who pulled me out of the water. The Coast Guard arrived. They fished me out of the water and they started asking me a bunch of questions. The guy looks at me, he leans in and he says, kid, do you know how many people we pull out of this water that are already gone. And I said, no, and I don't wanna know. And he said, well, I'm gonna tell you, this unit has pulled 57 dead bodies out of this water and one live one. Our next guest today also attempted to end his own life, but Kevin Hines survived and now uses his life to spread the message there is hope and there is help. I want to help people understand that their thoughts don't have to lead them to an attempt. Their thoughts don't have to become their actions when they're suicidal. You're going to help change people's lives, okay? That's your goal. That's your life goal. Change people's lives for the better, okay? All right, see. If we do not talk openly about what suicide is, who it affects, and how it affects them, if we do not use the word safely with education and awareness, we run the risk of missing all those people who have it on their minds. But I say to you now, the next time you see someone in obvious emotional distress, I beg of you, walk up to that person and say something to the effect of, are you okay? You could quite literally save a life in that moment. Everywhere I go in the world, and I travel everywhere I can to, to talk about this story, when you tell someone's story, they tell you theirs. And then they tell you their truth for the first time they've never told anybody in their lives. So my purpose is to ignite people to share the truth because a pain shared is a pain halved. Anybody out there watching this right now, considering it, what do you want them to know? Stop. Breathe. In four seconds, out eight. Do it 30 times. Stop. Breathe. You got plenty of time to die. It doesn't have to be by your hands. That destroys everyone left behind, but don't feel guilty about it. You want to live because you deserve this life. One thing you should never do is silence your pain. I silenced my pain for years. I buried it deep down inside me like so many people do, and I lost myself and it came out in a burst of rage against myself that led me to attempt to take my life. I thought I had to die, and I was wrong. Learn from me. So that's a remarkable <laughs> experience, isn't it? <laughs> Especially when the sea lion saved his life. I couldn't believe that, you know. So, you know, his message was, you know, that thought that nobody cares is not true. And, uh, of course, you know, he realized that afterwards when he was saved by a sea lion, that every, every, he says everybody cares. 
and they do in a way if they know what the situation actually is. So this is this is seeing, you know, he's seeing the power of believing your thoughts and following your thoughts and actually uh, trying to commit suicide as he did and obviously having a big mission. I, I like this video particularly because it's very good for young people because as you saw, you know, the statistics at the end, it said 15 to 29 years of age, the suicide is the second uh, cause of, greatest cause of death, second cause. So that's, that's something very serious for younger people. And of course, this is partly belie not, uh, is believing this thinking, this destructive thinking, being caught into it. So what does the Buddha have to, to say about, uh, how to, uh, about thinking? And this strategy or this management plan for thinking, dealing with thinking. And sometimes people might think, well, did the Buddha think? Do you think, did the Buddha think? Yeah, he did, he did. And I'll, I'll, I'll go on a bit later where he's talking, talks about his experience of, you know, it's quite an interesting uh, sort of description of his experience as, a, as an enlightened being. And uh, it, you may remember there's a sutta in the, uh, uh, the middle-length discourses of Buddha. There's lots of the Buddha's teachings, so they're very voluminous actually. And in one of these suttas, there's the wonderful and marvelous qualities of the Buddha that the Venerable Ananda, his uh, uh, assistant, personal assistant you might say, he looked after the Buddha for 25 years. And he goes through all these wonderful and marvelous qualities of the Buddha. You know, and he says, the, the, this is the Bodhisattva actually before he became the Buddha. And he says, oh, you know, when he passed away from his previous life, he, uh, conscious, he was a conscious, self-aware, was born into the Tusita heaven. And then when he was... Uh, when he was born on his last birth as, and became the Buddha, he was conscious, aware as he entered his mother's womb. And when he uh, came out of his mother's womb, he's supposed to have walked seven steps and spoken. <laughs> and all these things. And, and then what Ananda's going on. And the Buddha says, these are true, these are true. And then at the very end of this suit, it's lovely actually, the Buddha says to Ananda, and remember this, as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Buddha, the Tathagata, that he knows his thought, his feelings, his perceptions, his thoughts, so thinking, as they arise while they're present and changing, even in the present moment, that present, and as they pass away. He knew these things. This is just, you know, many people think, wow. <laughs> I think most people would think, so what? <laughs> but this is amazing to be aware of thinking feelings and perceptions because they're so quick in the mind aware when they come while they're, while they're present and changing then pass away this is really extraordinary and this gives us an insight into somebody that's completely isn't completely enlightened but they can be so aware of what is happening in their body and minds and because of that in other people's bodies and minds but the Buddha's management plan is for thinking, thought management plan, uh, is really the uh, sutta he, a teaching he gave, in, again in the middle length discourses, on the two kinds of thought. Do people know that one, two kinds of thought? I think it's, it's a very famous one. And in this uh, teaching, he talks about when he was actually not enlightened, when he was a bodhisattva, he was on the way to be enlightened, the Buddha to be. And so he was still probably in the palace living the lay life. And he contemplated on the two kinds of thoughts that he experienced. And the two kinds are very easy, actually, really. One is wholesome and positive, and one is negative and unwholesome. And in one category, he put the negative category of uh, the unwholesome or negative uh, thoughts. He put the sense, uh, the uh, desire, the uh, craving for sense pleasures, for, for things that you can see, hear, smell, taste and touch, and even the thinking about them. He put the anger, ill will, annoyance, irritation, that's the second type. And the third type, he said, is harming oneself or others. So it's very interesting. The Buddha to me had these thoughts, these thoughts of, uh, we say greed, hatred, and, and delusion were there. 
um, and that he was aware of them. But he was also aware that he had thoughts of giving, giving things up, of generosity, of loving kindness, of uh, contentment, of non-harming in his mind. And he realized that when he developed, if he, for instance, had a, a thought of greed, you know, thinking about essential pleasure that he, he, he could experience. And when you live in a palace, it's probably easy <laughs> to have a lot of these sensual experiences. When he thought about it, he realized he had given up or had, that had replaced this intention or this thought of giving, of generosity, thinking of others rather than oneself. And the same is same with with anger and irritation. When he was angry or annoyed, irritated, I think it would probably be very, very refined for a bodhisattva, for this very uh, wise sort of person, at, even at that stage. When he was angry or irritated, he'd given up the thought of loving kindness or uh, patience with others, compassion. And when he was thinking of harming others, you know, when we when we say things to other people to hurt them, or we do things to hurt them, he realized that he'd given up the thought of non-harming, actually having compassion for them, thinking of what he could help help them with. And this, of course, is, as I mentioned in the last few weeks, relates to two qualities in, in our mind, and this is wise attention and unwise attention. Basically, wise attention is yoniso manasikara. And so this is when we give attention to anything we experience and negative qualities, uh, positive qualities grow, this is wise attention. We know from experience, we are, ah, this is good. You know, I feel more generous. I feel more kind. I feel uh, more connected with people. I want to help people. I don't want to harm them. Uh, so this is wise attention. Unwise attention, ayoni so manasikara. When we give attention to uh, things, particularly our thoughts, and for, as a result, negative states of mind start to grow. When we start to get more greedy, we're thinking just of what we want, what we need, and we get more angry, we get more, and uh, also harm ourselves and others. So these types of thinking and very clear, actually. And this is a practical thing for us. We too can divide our thinking into those sorts of thoughts that are useful, helpful, that lead to positive results in our lives, positive emotions for us, an issue in good speech, speech that is kind, uh, gentle, um, and also uh, in our actions as well. Actions where we want to help, we want to give, not thinking of ourselves. So we can too use this very, very um, easy way really to divide our thinking and to see the results. Our lives are really an investigation <laughs> and we see, we learn from our experience, hopefully, of what works, what brings uh, positive results and what brings negative results. And that way we can monitor our thinking. That way we have got a thought management plan in action. And when we cultivate the, the more the positive and the wholesome, the wise attention, we find that there is less space for the negative uh, things to develop because the mind has got that focus. And this is, comes back to the Buddha's teaching that you know, by developing positive, wholesome states of mind we, and maintaining them, we avoid and let go of negative states of mind. So it's a very, uh, I call it the shortcut. <laughs> we have a shortcut. And he, he makes the comment, and this is quite important, especially for meditators actually, that, you know, uh, in this sutta we're talking about the two kinds of thoughts. He, he says in that he could think any of these wholesome thoughts, these positive thoughts, for as long as he wished, and he goes on about a day for a day or a night or a night and a day and all this, so a long time. But he said it would tire the body, just all this thinking. I think it would tire the mind too, actually, and make it difficult to develop this one-pointedness of mind. This is when the mind comes together in meditation, the mindfulness becomes very, very still and one-pointed. And all the negative qualities in the mind have gone. This is a coming towards stillness and one-pointedness. 
And why was that so important? Because from that, one can develop the power of mind to see things in a different way. And of course, we know that the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment, he was a bodhisattva, <laughs> he practiced this deep meditation where the mind was very one-pointed, came out of that, and with the power of that mind, he became the Buddha because he saw his past lives, he saw how we pass away. He saw millions and millions of them. That must have been really... I mean, some people feel tired thinking of going to work again and again and again, <laughs> all that sort of thing. But when you see millions of lives and you've done it again and again, it must be really turn you off, uh, you know, doing it again. And so it gave him some of the wisdom. And he saw also that we arise in our new lives, we are reborn according to our actions in, our, in, this, in our previous lives by body, speech and mind. And also then he saw the negative qualities in the mind and they were destroyed, his mind was purified and he understood the wisdom came of the Four Noble Truths. So, so that's for the Buddha. And the Buddha said, you know, in the next sutta in, the, uh, in that middle-length discourse is called Calming of Distracting Thoughts. So it's a big subject. <laughs> uh, the Buddha said that it's possible to become a master or a mistress of, of thought or thinking and to think what one wants and not what one doesn't want, wish to think. When he says that, it sounds like I'm deciding, isn't it? It sounds like I decide what I want to think, what I don't want to think. But for a person that can do this, who is a master or a mistress of thought, it's not that they are willing it. They understand the causes and conditions for particular types of thinking to come up, the negative thinking or the positive thinking. And because of that, they can choose the inputs, the things that will bring up the, the positive will bring and won't bring up the negative. And we have that choice by our wise attention or our unwise attention. So we see that in particularly, you know, with our lives, there's a lot of input, I, I call it input, from the TV, this very old-fashioned radio, even more old-fashioned, from the internet and from many newspapers, from many different sources. And we have to decide for ourselves what is giving rise to beneficial effects in our lives and what isn't. You know, as I often say, I've said before, if we're watching the news or, or reading the news in whatever format, whatever media, and we find ourselves depressed, angry and upset, I say to myself, what good is that? <laughs> what good is that? That's obviously unwise attention. Some people can watch the news or read it or whatever format, and they can develop sort of compassion for people and think, you know, that this is the way people can go if they have the wrong sort of thinking, the wrong sort of understanding. And so this is very, then it's useful. So it's not a hard and fast rule. It has to depend on whether it's giving rise to positive or negatives for us in our lives. The wisdom that supports thought management, this thought management plan, is really our attitude is the most important. You know, first of all, that thinking is sort of a sense of acceptance of thinking. That thinking is natural, it's a function of the mind. If we try to stop it, uh, if we try to use willpower, you've, you've had, a, had a, <laughs> a try at this, it doesn't work. And... Um, so... One of the interesting things is when we can accept, uh, when we can accept thinking, when we can see it as natural, and when we don't use this uh, uh, negative mind state, which says, "No, I don't want to think," you know, this is aversion. Really, there's two aspects, two ways of relating to our thinking. We either get into it, there's a desire, or we want to get rid of it if we happen to come here for a meditation. So. Or if we're experiencing very negative thinking, we often will want it to stop. We want to be free of it, like that man who jumped over the bridge, jumped over the rail at the Golden Gate Bridge. So this, uh, this sort of uh, attempt to get rid of thinking or getting involved with thinking is not in the middle, the middle way, as the Buddha would say. So when we can accept thinking, it tends to just run out of energy and it will 
reduce by itself. It would be nice if it stops. And sometimes in meditation or in daily life, we can experience those moments when thinking stops and it's just perfectly quiet. And they are just extraordinary moments, actually, because you realize how noisy it's been. (laughs) So much thinking in our lives. Like somebody, as I mentioned yesterday, who lives near a busy road, and they're so used to the traffic, they don't notice it at all. And then somebody comes, a visitor comes, and they say, oh my goodness, that's so noisy here. What, what? (laughs) You get used to it. So in the same way, you know, when thinking stops, we're aware of how noisy it is and how busy it keeps the mind. And I'll just end with one story, because it's nice to end with a story that emphasizes this, and it's from Ajahn Brahm, Brahm's experience. And he mentions, it's in his, um, it's in one of the books, <laughs> I think it's in Mindfulness, Bliss and Beyond probably. And uh, he mentions in his fifth vasa, this is the fifth range retreat, when we have uh, each year, um, Buddhist monks and nuns, we have a three-month period, a retreat period. And it's usually in the Indian sea, rainy season, which fortunately in Australia is also winter. That's very good. Other places it's not a summer. So, and he had, five, five, had, had spent five of these uh, vasa or range retreats in a monastery uh, that was for training uh, foreign monks that were ordained with Ajahn Chah. And Ajahn Chah was a famous meditation master who lived in northeast Thailand. And he developed, he set up this uh, monastery for training foreign monks. After five, five, month, five years of being there, this is usually a five-year period, he was allowed to go wandering. So he went wandering to various other monasteries and living on his own. And he found he loves caves. And he likes these dark caves and uh, very quiet places. And he found a cave in, in uh, I don't think it was the northeast, I think more like Chiang Mai that way. And uh, he, it was an ideal place, you know. He really, really perfect, very quiet and, uh, and uh, perfect for meditation. But then he found that he'd, he'd sit down to meditate and thinking would take over. It would be thinking, thinking, thinking. And he thought, well, I didn't come here to meditate. I've spent five years in the monastery and now I've got my opportunity. And he said it wouldn't be too bad if it was just ordinary thinking, but it was thinking about past girlfriends and sensuality. (laughs) So he said it was really getting very unpleasant for him and making his mind very upset, you know, because here he was. He was there to meditate, take full advantage of the ideal conditions. So he was—he got very exasperated, very desperate actually, and evidently bound, went and bound to the, the shrine three times to the Buddha statue there, and made a deal with the mind. And he said, the deal he made was, well, for one hour of the day you can think what you want. The mind can think what it's want. The rest of the time, you will we'll use for meditation. We'll follow the breath. We'll be with the breath. It's interesting, isn't it, to know that Ajahn Brahm had difficulties <laughs> with meditation. So, so he thought this was a good deal. So at least one hour of the day he would be free of thought, you know, and the rest of the time, uh, I mean uh, one hour of the day he would be thinking and the rest of the day he could be free of thought when he was practicing meditation. So he came to, came to the time he agreed on the afternoon, three o'clock, sit down, legs out, ready to think anything. Fair, fair go, mind can think anything you like, any thoughts you wish, all girlfriends, whatever, sat there. And the mind immediately went to watching the breath, no thinking. <laughs> and it just, it dawned on him, you know, how amazing. He'd made this deal that this hour was just for thinking. And what had happened? The mind wasn't thinking at all because he wasn't fighting the mind. He wasn't trying to force the mind. He was accepting, well, all right, go ahead, think. And then, having given that freedom, it didn't. It just became quiet, peaceful. He could watch the breath, breath after breath. And so this gave him a great lesson, and it gives us a great lesson too, that this is second noble truth meditation he was doing before, when he wanted no thinking. He wanted to stay with every breath. He didn't want any thoughts. This is called the source or the origin of suffering or unsatisfactoriness, wanting things to be other than they are at this very moment. But fortunately, when he made this deal with his mind, he realized 
the third noble truth type of meditation, which is letting go of wanting things to be this way or that way. Letting go of wanting the thinking to disappear. Letting go of wanting to stay with every... Letting go of desire. And when he did that, then he could stay with the breath. But he learnt so much from that, that the resistance, the wanting things to be other than they are at this particular moment, uh, was causing the problem. And, and that was a great breakthrough for him in his understanding. So I'd like to end here, it's a bit late, uh, just hoping that uh, we can take some of the Buddha's um, uh, management plan for thinking on board to divide our thinking into the useful, the un- that which is not useful, into the positive and the negative, and use that. And remember that video of Kevin Hines too, that when we feel a bit low, we can remember everybody cares, or everything cares, really, I think. This is quite, if this sea lion could care for this Kevin, Kevin Hines. So life is there, really, that everybody cares. So to use our thinking in the best way, so that it enhances our life, it doesn't detract from our life, and, and enhances our wisdom, our understanding of, of ourselves, the body, this body and mind, and life too. So I'd like to finish there. I'm over time. So thank you very much for that, for everyone watching. Um, maybe this time... For, is there any questions? Thinking's a big subject, isn't it? You can talk about it for hours. <laughs> you can think about it for hours. There we are. So just a couple of... Okay, the first question. Uh, common, common advice is... Yep. Keep... Keep yourself busy when you are depressed. What do you think? What's the benefit of meditation at depressing times when my negative thoughts are overwhelming? Mm. Mm. Yes, yes. Um, Yes, keeping yourself busy, it can be a good thing for depression, for sure. And particularly if, you know, a very good uh, antidepressant for all of us is giving. Giving is a very good thing. If we can help others, that helps us in a big way. So that's true. And at that time, you know, with um, in, when there is depression in the mind, in terms of meditation, it can be very helpful if we develop these um, positive emotions in our mind. So, for instance, if we develop loving kindness, metta, maitri, for ourselves, just as we are, fully, because this uh, metta, maitri, fully accepts ourselves as we are. We don't have to be a better version or different. We accept ourselves as we are. And this metta, this maitri, loving kindness, accepts others as they are too. So this is actually going to the root often of the problem with depression and negative states of mind. is a very bad sense of ourselves, low self-esteem, a negative image of ourselves. So this metta, this loving kindness, can help us very much accept ourselves, accept others, and most importantly, forgive ourselves and forgive others too, because this often can turn things around for us in terms of depression, you know, because it will, it will replace some of the negative thinking about ourselves. There was another video I was going to show, actually, <laughs> about negative uh, self-talk, but uh, there's not time for that one. But uh, this is so it's very useful. So what we're doing with this uh, metta meditation, not only metta, karuna, compassion, with joy with others and equanimity, is replacing negative self-talk, not with just words. What we're replacing it with is a heartfelt feeling of acceptance, of friendliness towards ourselves and others, to, uh, compassion, wanting to help ourselves and others, and uh, joy with others' success and good qualities, and equanimity, this support for others when we know that their lives are running according to their conditioning. And it's very, you try and change somebody, <laughs> it's hard enough to change ourselves. And we have to have this equanimity, we don't get negative about it, but we give this sort of loving support. So very important to do the meditation. Maybe just being mindful of the depression, not so helpful, but to bring up these positive qualities that actually address the root of the depression. They also address the root of anxiety too, because often it's a, 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 um, a negative 
idea of ourselves, which is at the root of that as well, anxiety. So thank you. Thank you for that. Oh, 45. This one's about anxiety. Oh, right. Good, good. Why are some people more anxious than others? Is there a Buddhist perspective on this difference? Thank you, Ajahn. Yes. Why are some people more anxious than others? It, to a large extent, as you would, may have gathered from this talk, is what sort of thinking we are encouraging, what sort of thinking we're giving attention to. If we're giving attention to thinking about the future a lot and that maybe we haven't got enough time, I can't cope, um, these sorts of thoughts, then we will become anxious. I don't have the ability to deal with the things that are coming up in my life. Then these will give rise to the sense of anxiety. And we tend to give more and more attention to them. So when they become this automatic pattern, you know, then you have the panic attack at two or three in the morning. It's just happening, you know. And I know people, there was a the, uh, she was the, was the coordinator for a meditation group in WA. That was what brought her to meditation, was the fact she was having panic attacks in two or three in the morning. And, and so then she became interested in meditation and was able to turn that around because she, she could see that it was a recording, that was something that was out of her control. And w- once we realized that, that... Uh, Thinking is out of our control, but it, we can influence it by the attention we give to various, uh, to positive things or negative things. So that's what I would say why some people are more anxious than others. Um, you know, sometimes the conditions we live in too can give rise to anxiety and insecurity. Insecurity is a, is a big factor, isn't it, in uh, anxiety. It, it really feeds it. And insecurity really ties into um, the sense of wanting things to be permanent, to be predictable, to be reliable. This is, um, and of course they aren't. <laughs> but some people live in more uh, unpredictable circumstances than others. So for instance, you know, I could just see it in my own experience that that day at Newbury Forest Monastery up in, in the hills outside Melbourne, when the fire warning was there, you could feel that everybody was a little on edge. There was this anxiety because we didn't know at any moment the insecurity that we could have to go. And so sometimes the situations we live in promote insecurity, that sense of anxiety. And there can be family dynamics, there can be the dynamics in a country or a society at a particular time. War times are very difficult for people. And people who lived in uh, Sri Lanka when the, uh, uh, there was the, uh, the war going on with the Tamil Tigers, they experienced that. Especially if, you know, I know some people who were living in uh, Colombo, who were living near some oil, an oil refinery that got blown up. And after that, after the court on fire was destroyed, they, they came to Australia. <laughs> so that insecurity prompted them to, to, to go, that anxiety. So the sources of anxiety are many, but we can um, limit it, reduce it by the things we pay attention to or the things we don't give attention to. So if we can limit it by heading towards, focusing on, giving wise attention to positive, wholesome things, and reduce it by not uh, giving attention to those things that promote the anxiety. So that's, I hope that's useful for you. It's good news because we can, uh, even though these things are programmed, you might say, we can choose the programming to a certain extent. We can influence the programming by our intelligence, our investigation of our experience, honesty about our experience, and then taking, changing the focus to something that gives rise to better results. So I hope that's helpful for you. Yeah. It's just um, a statistic I read mm. about thinking. Um, I don't know exactly how psychologists have measured this, mm. but they, uh, they say the average person, mm. um, 80% of their thinking is negative. Wow. And 97% of the thoughts we have in any particular day are just thoughts we've already had just on, on a loop. So on, any, on one day, about 3% of our thoughts mm. are new. Wow. 
that much. That was I'm quite... really amazed. Three percent. That's pretty good, isn't it? So this is. No, thank you for that, Langdon. Yes, it's it's interesting, you know. Last question before we call break. Yeah, because now we have. So thank you for that. It does point to you know the fact that it's a, we are you know playing recordings. Uh, well, we're not choosing the recordings actually, but the recordings are playing. We choose the things we give attention to, and then they give rise to our recordings that appear in our thoughts. So yes, and the the big part of thinking that it's it's always uh, useful to reflect is that thinking is a very big support for who I am. You know, that's what why we think. It's a lifeline for being I, me, myself. And and sometimes when people find that there is no thinking in their mind, even, you know, briefly in meditation, fear can arise because who am I? <laughs> So this thinking has that uh, that that function too. It gives support to whoever we think we are, and usually that's such a limited version of who we can be, if we can let go of this I, me, and mine. So I encourage you with that, and may uh, may all of us um, develop the wholesome, the positive in our lives, in thinking, in speech, and in action, and reduce the negative, and the unwholesome in our lives through our thinking, speech, and action. But thinking is the most important one. It's where it's all coming from. <laughs> so if those would like to, we can uh, pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Thank you very much. There we are.